We'll hear argument first this morning in case 151498, Lynch v. DeMott. <coughs> Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals held that the definition of crime of violence in 18 U.S.C. 16b is unconstitutionally vague on its face, relying on this Court's decision in Johnson holding the residual clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act unconstitutionally vague. That was wrong for two reasons. First, the standard of vagueness applicable in an immigration proceeding is not the same as in a criminal uh, proceeding because the Constitution does not require prior notice that conduct will give rise to removal and also because the immigration laws have long been administered by the executive and administrative proceedings uh, because under broad delegations of authority because of the close relation of immigration to foreign relations and national security. Second, though, in any event, under the criminal vagueness standard applied in Johnson, 16b is not unconstitutional. As exemplified by this Court's unanimous decision in Leocal, in the more, in the more than 30 years that 16b has been on the books. But, Mr. Needler, didn't the government argue when, when Johnson was before us that if the ACCA residual clause was invalid, then 16b would be vulnerable because it was subject to the same central objection. Was not that the government's argument? Well, the, the United States was responding to the argument that that was made in Johnson, which was broader than the Court's ultimate rationale. Uh, the, uh, to the extent substantial risk alone was thought to be a problem, uh, the Court made clear in Johnson that cases involving references to substantial risk are not inherently problematic, and in fact, uh, there are there are many such uh, such ones. The Court focused its analysis analysis uh, on two different aspects, but they ha- they have features that uh, 16b does not have, and make 16b very distinctive, and in fact, that's the reason why 16b has not given rise to the interpretive uh, confusion that finally led this Court in Johnson to hold the ACCA provision unconstitutional. I thought the Johnson two features at issue were the fact that we were asking courts to imagine what the ordinary crime was, and there was no way to even think about what that was. Your adversary points out with burglary, if the ordinary crime is during the day, there's one level of risk. If it's at night, there's a different level of risk. The nature of the entry is um, uh, at question, whether it's forcible or merely walking through an open door uninvited. Um, it may be easier with burglary for lots of reasons, but there the level of what or what constitutes an ordinary crime was somewhat at the center of Johnson. Why isn't it at the center here? Because there are several very important distinctions between this case and Johnson with with respect to that. Uh, The the ACCA residual clause spoke in terms of a serious potential risk that serious injury uh, to another person might uh, might result. And as the Court pointed out, that uh, created uncertainty about things that could happen even after the offense was committed, um, and injury to people, uh, bystanders or anyone else, it could be. Section 16B is very different in that respect. It asks whether the offense by its nature uh, cr- uh, presents a substantial risk that physical force 
will be used against the person or property of another. And that's very different in several respects. It confines the analysis in both a temporal and functional sense to the elements of the offense. You don't look at what conduct might, might have happened afterward. It focuses narrowly on the elements of the offense because the, the question is whether the use of physical force uh, might be used in the course of committing that offense. Well, may I ask, Mr. Nieder, because this aspect of your brief was a, a bit confusing to me, just because sometimes you are talking about temporal and sometimes you're talking about functional, and I want to know what you think the real limitation is. So take the example that you use, which is the possession of a shotgun example, right? right. And you say that that would uh, fall outside of Section 16. Right. And the question is why. Uh, temporally, you know, you're possessing a shotgun when you shoot somebody. You can't do it any other way. So the temporal analysis doesn't work. So what is it about that example that makes it fall outside of Section 16 whereas you argued it would have fallen inside of ACCA? Well, the, uh, well for, first of all, in ACCA, that was part of the confusion. That was the confusion in Johnson uh, itself. Yes, exactly. So but, why but, are you but, so but sure in, that there would not be the confusion under Section 16? Well, I, I think, again, because of Leocal, and the courts after Leocal have had no problem concluding that it was not covered, and the reason is that Leocal, excuse me, 16B requires uh, a risk of the use of physical force, the, the, an act of violent uh, crime, as the court described it in, in Leocal, and the possession of a, of a sawed-off shotgun at any particular moment in time, uh, it doesn't have to culminate in its use uh, at all for for. Well, that's Kansas. absolutely true, and that's what gave us trouble in ACCA, because it could culminate in its use, but it didn't have to culminate in its use. But then you take a case like burglary, and you could say the exact same thing about burglary. Somebody could walk in on a burglary, and all of a sudden there would be a use of force. But a burglary could happen in such a way that nobody walked in, and there wouldn't be a use of force. So, again, it just seems as though we're replicating the same kind of confusions, and there's nothing that separates the two, I, I, or at least I'm trying to find out what I, I, you think separates Yes, I don't, I, I don't think so, because another important aspect or textual point in 16b is whether the offense by its nature uh, presents a substantial risk. By its nature means it in its natural, ordinary sense. And, for example, in Leocal said in no in, – uh, the court said, in no ordinary or natural sense could the could DUI be regarded as the affirmative use of physical force. It's not a violent. You know, I crime. was I was but, very struck by that language too, and I, I think it's that language more than some of the other language you point to in its brief that might suggest that there's some distinction between 16b and uh, and the ACCA residual clause. But on the other hand, by its nature, seems to suggest an elements focus, a real elements focus. Look at the elements and ask, given those elements, given the nature of the offense, uh, what's going to happen? But, um, you know, the elements section of Section 16 is Section 16A, so it can't be all about elements. So what is that by its nature doing? Well, it's by, by its nature of the offense, which would incorporate its elements. We think elements are central to both A and B. A in, involves the actual, actual use of force or threatened use of force or attempted use of force. The element is the actual or threatened use of force. Whereas under 16B, the question is whether the elements add up to an offense in which there is a risk of force being used, even if it doesn't have to. And burglary, I th- burglary is a classic example. Uh, it, 
is a classic example of that. And I, and I think – But why this, isn't also possession of a shotgun ex- a classic example of that? Well, uh, let me explain, if I may. Let, burglary is, is descended from the common law, and, it, and its rationale is precisely because of the risk that the, that the burglar will encounter someone in the course of committing the burglary. Um, and and it, it is logical, built into, inherent in the crime of burglary, that there may be a response to an uninvited uh, entry into a home or, or other structure. By its nature, that transaction, that, that those elements of burglary create the risk that force will have to be used. The same is true of and, kidnapping. And, and, and give me a contrast. And by contrast... Uh, what that fell under the ACA residual clause would not fall under 16b because the same thing could not be said? Well, I, I mean, one that did not fall under the, the ACA. Uh, um, no, give me one that would fall under the ACA residual clause, but, what, but or where there was confusion as to whether it fell under the residual uh, clause. Begay is, is a good example there. It, it was precisely the, the, uh, the crime involved in Leocal, where the Court had no trouble in a two-page decision saying that DUI is not covered because of this textual difference, uh, be, because of, there has to be uh, a, a risk of the use of force, which is not the accidental or sort of negligent conduct. Whereas in Begay, the court struggled with how to, how to deal with that under the residual clause. Uh, it, it, it created a, an extra textual limitation, the purposeful, violent, aggressive test in order to weed out, uh, uh, negligent or accidental offenses. Whereas the explicit text of, the, of 16b itself, uh, takes care of that problem. So that, that is an important difference. Another important difference, though, that I haven't mentioned yet is that the residual clause tied the level of risk to the four enumerated offenses, which were not consistent with each other. I, I think you're, you're quite right that that was one of the arguments in Johnson that they said make it a statute confusing. It, it does seem odd, with, before we look at Johnson, that giving examples makes the statute more vague. It's a, it's a little counterintuitive, but, but, but you're, you're correct. I think that's the way that the Johnson court saw it. And I, th- and I, think, the, I think the problem was n- not examples per se, but, th- but the fact that they were conflicting examples, that I think the court came to conclude embedded an arbitrariness into uh, the ACA residual clause in all its applications. And, that, and that's effectively what the, the, there was like an, an ingredient in that statute that made it incapable of consistent application. That's not true here. So, is- Mr. Kneeder, it's, it's absolutely right that the court in um, Johnson said that those examples compounded the problem. But the essential problem that the court thought existed was the use of the ordinary case analysis. So I'm just going to ask you the question that the court asked in Johnson. And I, 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 how, how do we answer this question? This is what the court said in Johnson. How does one go about deciding what kind of conduct the ordinary case of a crime involves? A statistical analysis of the state reporter, a survey, expert evidence, Google, gut instinct. So that's a multiple choice test. What do we do? I think the, the, because the, that is still the same under this statute. Well, it, it, I think it's not the same. Again, unlike unlike in uh, the ACA residual clause, you start out by looking at the elements of the offense. What and are the elements of the offense such that, by their nature, they give rise to a substantial risk? Of injury. Now, for some offenses, I think that you can look at the long history of the offense, and burglary is an example. And indeed, in Leocal, 
this Court said that burglary is a classic example of a crime of violence, and that, in fact, the Senate report on this provision says that burglary is the classic example. And if one looks at Lefebvre or other historical materials, it is because of the risk of force that might be used. Of course, this, this statute also concerns risk to property. So certain offenses, uh, I, th- I think the, the — So can I give you another example just to test how this uh, test works? You say you look to the elements of the, fe- the offense to see if they give rise to a risk of injury. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. How do we do vehicular flight under that example? I'm just trying to sort of ground this. And you might be right. I'm not uh, — you, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what the difference is if we look at it that way. Because that doesn't sound so different from what we were trying to do in ACCA. In fact, it sounds kind of the same as, honestly. Um, so uh, give me vehicular flight. How does it work? Vehicular flight from a, a police officer after being ordered to stop is, is, again, if you think by its nature, what, 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 what was the legislature envisioning when it enacted that? And I think, again, it's parallel to burglary. The, the conduct is such that in the, in the course of committing the offense, in the course of the flight, not something that might be collateral or down the road, is the — So that would fall on, on the included side. Because um, I, I thought I, that your brief said something different, but maybe I misread Well, it, it, it may depend on the elements of the particular state statute. One can't give a, an across-the-board uh, answer to, to any one um, label for, for a type of offense without looking at the elements. But, for example, in, in vehicular flight — or, or any statute. The state law might, for example, have gradations, which would show that the more aggravated version is one that the legislature had singled out because of the particular risk. So it, it's important to look at the state statute and what was it driving at? What are the, what are the elements? What, what harms was it? And go back to possession of a shotgun because I'm running over in my mind, my memory of the Johnson oral argument where basically the SG's office made exactly this argument about possession of a shotgun, how uh, the elements of that offense are understood to give rise to a significant level of risk. Well, the, I think the concern, w- one of the concerns mentioned in, in, in Johnson was, what if the, the shotgun might be used way down the road remotely from, e- from any, remote in time, from any moment in time when the, when the uh, person was arrested possessing the, the shotgun. There well, might the, not be I mean, any. The, presumably the person is possessing the shotgun when the person kills somebody. So it's temporally, but, I don't think that that argument works. No, it, 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 the, the offense continues for the entire duration of possession, but we're not saying that that's enough. There has to be a substantial risk uh, in the in the in the course of committing the offense, well, and as I one of the, I remember the government arguing in Johnson that most people who are found with sawed-off shotguns are committing crimes. Why isn't that a substantial risk of force being used? Well, uh, um, if statistically, I, I think- if statistically, and I don't remember the statistics now, but they were very clear then that a huge amount, number of the crimes of possession of a shotgun were um, led to criminal activity. Well, I, I, I think it get, is, the, is the use of force necessary for the crime of possession of the, of the shotgun and, and um, well, the possession itself. Well, the use of force itself. is not necessary for the use of for burglary if you walk in. And there's nobody there. You take what you find. No, but the, but the but the historical understanding of burglary is precisely that it will 
um, it, that it will. So we're now going back to com- to gut instinct. No, it's not gut instinct. I, mean, I, I think anything but. I, I, I think um, a, a court looks at the again the elements of the offense, judicial interpretations of the statute, uh, a, a analysis of what the state legislature was driving at, state judicial decisions that might themselves describe what the risk is or the risk that was being addressed by the uh, by the offense. It's a it's a legal it's a legal question. A judge's experience, however, before, with something like burglary can be quite uh, informative. Before your white light goes on, could you address your, your first argument that uh, <coughs> the, the vagueness standard is different here? Yes. Than, than in John than in Johnson. Yes, uh, I, I, I might say uh, Jordan versus uh, the, the George, George um, uh, a case from some years ago, is, is a little more persuasive uh, than I had thought uh, for for the respondent for the respondent here. You could say it's dictum because they they didn't really need to reach the issue based on their holding. Well, I mean, I think there are a number of things to be said about DeGeorge. You're right. The, the, the issue was not addressed. Um, the Court applied what seemed yes. to be the same standard, but, yes. it, but it wasn't briefed. And so the question of, of, of how it would apply in that setting uh, wasn't uh, addressed. Also, well, you um, mean you, something has to be briefed before we say it's the law? Well, <laughs> The, the court often, yeah, if, if the court has what, what might be referred to as a drive-by uh, ruling, I wouldn't say it was drive-by, it was considered, but, there, but, it, what, but usually you want adversarial presentation uh, by the parties. For example, one important, several important aspects of DeGeorge, it did not discuss this court's earlier decision in the Mahler case, in which the court uh, indicated that there could be a looser standard of, or would be a looser standard of vagueness in, in immigration cases, specifically point out, pointing out a critical difference. And that is that the ex post facto clause does not apply to immigration. Therefore, a person can be removed for conduct that was not a basis for removal before he engaged in that conduct, criminal uh, or not. And therefore, the notice piece of of uh, the vagueness standard really doesn't well, fit well in the in the immigration uh, context. That observation was at a time before the draconian effects of uh, removal and deportation came into effect. We now have lifetime bars, which were rarely in, uh, or on very limited circumstances imposed previously. We have many more criminal sanctions with harsher sentences now. Um, I think more than anything, we have often said that vagueness depends on the gravity of what is at stake. Today, what's at stake is a lot more than what was at stake uh, decades ago. But what, what's at stake can't be viewed just from that perspective. What's at stake is the fact that the, the immigration laws are vital to the nation's uh, national security and foreign relations and the safety and welfare of the country. And, and there's uh, always the fail state that the Attorney General, in his or her discretion, can deny, can deny anyone the right to stay here. But if we're going to ask immigration judges to impose the consequences that they do today, don't we need something that's not arbitrary? Well, if I could address uh, several pieces of that. While there, there are more criminal offenses now that give rise to removal, the same basic point obtains, which is that a, a person can be removed on a ground that was not a criminal offense or it was not a basis for removal at the time he engaged in that conduct. Again, whether it's a crime or not a crime. Could you uh, say that means that the alien has no constitutionally based right 
to notice, and therefore the notice piece of the vagueness doctrine has far less force in if this the court, context. If the Court were to hold that 16b is uh, unconstitutionally vague in criminal cases, what would the impact of uh, — in criminal cases involving the application of the categorical approach, what would the, what would the implications of that be? Well, as we cite in our brief, there are a number of um, places in Title 18 where, where the definition of uh, crime of violence is used either by exp- express reference to uh, 16b or by use of the, of the same formulation, like in 924c, uh, where the same formulation is, is, uh, is used. What would be some of the most important examples? Well, that would be that would be one. There, 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 the 16b is incorporated into offenses uh, dealing with money laundering, um, uh, Hobbs Act robbery, I believe, a number of other offenses. It's also used to determine uh, whether a juvenile will be prosecuted. Doesn't that doesn't that suggest that the argument that the civil uh, standards apply rather than the criminal one uh, uh, loses some of its force for precisely that reason? No, I, I don't think so. For, for one thing, I think it's, it's important to recall that 16b is just a definition. It is not a statement of a crime on its own. It is a, it is a definition or identifying a category of offenses that are then plugged into some other statute, either a criminal offense or the immigration laws. In the immigration laws, for example, it's identifying a category uh, of crimes that are a, uh, that constitute a ground for removal, just like all of the other aggravated felony provisions do, or but the non-criminal I, I that, ones do. I, I thought that the point the Chief Justice is underscoring is that if we go, uh, if, if, if we base this decision on the fact that this is, this, this is civil, then you have to come back here for other cases under No, no, that is, that is true, and, and, for, and for that reason that um, the Court uh, may well want to, in our view, sustain uh, 16b by applying the criminal standard, because if, if, it, if it is sustained on, under the criminal standard as we think it clearly should be, then, then a fortiori it would be, it would be constitutional in the What, what do you think of the idea suggested in Justice Alito's opinion that the word offense, like the word crime, both those words are ambiguous. They can refer either to a category of behaviors that many people can engage in, or they can refer to this behavior that this defendant engaged in on this particular instance. So he said, as I read it, let's back up. Can't be done. Congress thought, both in this statute and in the other statute, it wouldn't be that tough to categorize all the state criminal laws by their degree of risk of violence. Can't be done. Too many state criminal laws used in too many different ways, too many different words. No statistics are kept. Uh, the Justice Department can't get them, so we're left guessing. So let's back up and look at what this person did on this occasion. What is your reaction to that? Well, uh, we, we have not argued that because this Court's de- – Thank you to argue no, it. No, I, know, I just but, wanted to know what your reaction is. But, but this, this Court's decision in Leocal said the categorical approach uh, applies – um, if, if this Court were to conclude that uh, this could not be sustained under, under uh, the criminal standard, that may be one option. It may be a particular option. We'd have to have it argued, but I, I think if you really did that, uh, I just don't know if you've thought it through at the SG's office about the pros and cons. And in case, you needn't have done. But in case you have done, I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate your telling us what you all think, uh, even if it, you're not stuck with it. 
I know that's unusual. Well, but I mean, be stuck with it. I'm just curious. There, were, there were obviously would be be advantages in the sense that the statute would be would be uh, preserved. There could be questions, though, about how it would be administered uh, to determine what actually happened uh, on the prior occasion. But one one place where you know the, the court might want to consider uh, reserving, if, if that were if that were an issue, would be 924C, where the where the crime of violence is contemporaneous with the possession of the. Uh, of, of the I firearm, and so it, it, you're not looking at pa- a past offense. You're looking at the overall offense in which the um, which the weapon was possessed. Could, could I ask, uh, just in thinking through your argument, it would help me to get a few examples. So, could you give me three examples, let's say, if there are in, if there are those that many, where we struggled under ACA, but where the answer is clear under 16b so that I understand what, it, what kind of distinction you're drawing. Right. I, I think DUI uh, is, is the prime example. Leocal itself concluded that DUI uh, was not covered in, in a unanimous opinion. It's only the Court's only occasion to have to address this in 30 years because of the text of 16b, uh, the act that requires the active use of force. I think the sawed-off shotgun, which this Court in Torres uh, said was not uh, covered by uh, 16B, and, and we believe that that's correct, again, because of the, the you don't have to use force in order to possess the, the shotgun, even though injury could result under the ACA clause, perhaps, and that's what, that's what was confusing uh, uh, under, the, under uh, the ACA clause. So I, I think those are two prime examples. But uh, 16B — Anything un- else? Because this is really important for me, well, trying well, to figure and, yes, out what and, the differences are. Yes, and and in in Begay, where the where the court formulated the extra textual test of uh, act, I forget the precise words, but violent, aggressive uh, conduct, it pointed out that some such limitation was also necessary uh, because of um, uh, otherwise, like pollution offenses or or uh, consumer product defenses might be covered. So the, co- the court, again, was, was juggling with the way uh, the ACA residual clause operates in order to figure out how to exclude that. Well, there's no question that those crimes are clearly excluded uh, under the ACA clause. On the other hand, some other crimes besides burglary, like kidnapping or escape, I think if, if one pictures those offenses, they clearly uh, uh, present a risk that physical force will be used and give this statute a core of, of valid applications that it can't be held unconstitutional on its face. The, the may, immigration judge also found that uh, the, these burglaries qualified as crimes of moral turpitude, another ground for removal. It does, burg- does burglary qualify as a, as a crime of moral turpitude? Um, I think in some circumstances it may. I think it may depend on the, on the nature of the state offense. Again, it's not always possible. California burglary is not generic burglary, as this Court recognized in Descamps. If I may reserve the balance. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Rosencrantz. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As Justice Sotomayor points out, there were two critical factors that this Court pointed to in Johnson that, quote, conspired to make the ACA residual clause unconstitutional. Everyone agrees that they are both present here. It's hypothesizing the ordinary instance, the ordinary case of a set of elements. And second, then from that hypothesis, estimating the degree of risk of some sort. And as Justice Ginsburg points out, the government, correctly back in Johnson, 
said that those two factors are in existence here in Section 16B, and that uh, the residual clause here was, quote, equally susceptible to challenge. There was something that's, that, that isn't here, Mr. Rosencrantz, and that is a long history of struggling and failing to come up with an interpretation. And I'm wondering why you think we don't have that same history, because I don't think that there's any question that um, we would not have said what we said in Johnson had Johnson been the first case. Johnson was the umpteenth case, and we had gone back and forth, and we had struggled, and we couldn't figure out. And uh, and here we don't seem to have any of that. It seems as though, and not only with respect to this court, but with respect to lower courts, it seems that everybody's getting along just fine. And much as I can't quite understand what the difference is, there just does seem to be a difference in practice. Well, Justice Kagan, uh, let me st- let me give two answers. The first is that this whole notion that the government uh, is discussing about a different experience with ACCA than with Section 16B is revisionist history. Every single ACCA case that this Court decided was presented to this Court in simultaneous cert petitions in the 16B context. And this Court would then GBR the 16B cases and the lower courts and this court would then cross-reference ACA case, ACA residual clause cases into Section 16B, treating them equivalently. So this court's experience with the ACA residual clause is its experience with Section 16B. And the whole series of questions you asked Justice Kagan about, well, what about Sykes? How would this turn out here? What about Chambers? What about Johnson itself? Every single one of those cases is coming back here. We know that they're coming. Sykes is already, that that is the Sykes issue, is already presented as a circuit conflict right now in the lower courts. It is roiling the lower courts. There is a Fifth Circuit case where the majority and the dissent of Sykes are being played out in the Fifth Circuit right now. And the same will be true of all of those. And then secondly, it is simply not true to to say that uh, everyone's getting along just fine in the lower courts. Between our brief and the National Immigration Project, we've identified ten circuit splits, some of them on exactly identical elements. And what is the problem with those cases? The courts on either side, it's not just that they're engaged in different elemental analysis. The courts on each side are fundamentally disagreeing about what the ordinary case of a particular crime is. What, what are the argument that 16B is more precise? For one thing, it is limited to in the course of commission of the offense, <clears throat> and that the offender must be the one who uses the force, and in addition, it covers this is a force against a victim's property. So it, it has a specificity that the ACA residual clause lacked. Your Honor, let me start with the with in the course of, which um, uh, took a, a lot of Mr. Needler's uh, argument time. Two things, well, three things to say about it. First, Courts have uniformly held that in the course of does not entail a temporal limitation, that it doesn't — I think it wasn't the word during the commission of. Is it 
In the course of or during the commission of? In in, uh, In 16b. In 16b, the phrase that the government is speaking of is, in the course of committing the offense. And so, just to, to continue that first answer, courts have held that inchoate offenses of the sort that, that Justice Kagan was asking about or possession offenses do create the risk, and appropriately so, because um, — or, or let's take another example that, uh, that consumed a lot of time today, burglary. Justice Kagan's question about burglary, notably — that is why in Leocal, this court held that burglary did, was sort of the classic example of a 16B violent crime. Burglary, as this court said in Johnson, it's completed the moment you cross the threshold. If all we are looking at is the temporal, so when are the elements completed, entering with the bad intent is what completes the, elef- the, the elements. So if someone enters, they've completed the elements, they can then ransack the apartment for the next five hours. That is still in the course of committing the offense. Second answer, the government's new interpretation does not change the fundamentally imaginary nature of the inquiry, no matter what. Courts will still be imagining the ordinary case, only now you have to further imagine, okay, in that ordinary case, when are the elements typically satisfied? And finally, that textual difference is not actually a textual difference. ACCA says this, the ACCA residual clause says the same thing in different well, words. Well, of course, of course, courts and legislatures always have to imagine consequences when they're classifying crimes. Uh, they have to uh, define what burglary is because they know that in a significant number of cases, certain consequences will have. That, that's the way the law works. Yes, of course, Your Honor. And if this were just to the question that, that Justice Alito asked Mr. Needler about ramifications, if this, is, if this were just about importing 16B into the definitions of various crimes, there's no vagueness problem because, as this Court said in Johnson, and it addressed exactly that question in Johnson, it's a totally different inquiry when, we, when you are applying the stated elements to an actual concrete example that is there before the court. Mr. Rosencrantz, could I ask you this? Suppose Congress enacted a statute that said any person who commits a crime of moral turpitude in the District of Columbia <clears throat> or with, within the special or ter- maritime or territorial jurisdiction of the United States shall be imprisoned for not more than 20 years. Would that be unconstitutionally vague? Your Honor, it would certainly be problematic. Uh, And the reason it would be problematic is because you don't have an administrative agency that then gives content to the moral turpitude language the way you do, for example, in the immigration context. And by the way, an agency to, to which deference is owed. But this is a statute, 16b, that is a criminal statute. But that seems to me, I mean, that I'm surprised by, somewhat surprised by your answer. That seems to me to be at least as vague as 16b. And yet the holding in the Jordan case on which you rely was that that, that a, a, a deportation statute that permitted deportation for a person convicted of a crime of moral turpitude satisfied the applicable vagueness standard there. 
So, uh, well, well, yes, Justice Alito, and, and that's exactly, so that is the distinction. So today, moral, ter- torpe- moral turpitude is a phrase that, uh, the immigrate, the, the executive agency has defined. People know what it means, they know what's in, and they know what's out. But, I mean, unless you're willing to say that the criminal statute that I hypothesized would satisfy vagueness standards, I, I don't see how you can say that the same vagueness standard applies in criminal cases and deportation cases. Your Honor, the same vagueness standard does apply uh, in, in the two contexts. But so crime, then this crime, then the statute making a crime of moral, saying anyone who commits a crime of moral turpitude uh, sentenced to 20, up to 20 years, that would be, that would satisfy vagueness for it, a criminal statute. In a criminal statute, it would not because there is no history of agency interpretations to which courts must defer. But let me just back up for a and moment. What, what a, is DUI a crime of moral turpitude? I, I have no idea. How about failure to file an income tax return? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the agency interpretations How of moral turpitude are. entry into the United States? I think not. But, but let me just back up, because your, uh, uh, your Honor has uh, moved into the second issue. I just want to be clear that, in, in our view, and in the view of all of the lower courts, Jordan settles the question on whether it's the same standard for criminal and deportation. But this court does not have to embrace Jordan or even address the question whether it's the same standard. 16B is a criminal statute that Congress chose to import wholesale into the immigration laws and that um, that has criminal applications even under the INA. Johnson uh, talked a lot about uh, the confusion caused by the predicate offenses uh, that were were listed. Uh, in fact, in colorful terms, explained why those uh, compounded the vagueness in, uh, uh, in the residual clause. Of course, you don't have those here. Yes, Your Honor. So, so I would start with where with where Justice Kennedy started, which is. As a general matter, one does not ordinarily think that giving examples makes something uh, uh, more vague than it would otherwise be. And I know this Court spent a lot of time trying to draw lessons from those examples with varying with, — with actually with no success um, — in varying methodologies to try to narrow the, what is otherwise a vague statute. And the government's argument in Johnson was that, that Congress succeeded in narrowing with those enumerated, um, uh, elements, those enumerated client crimes, and this court concluded that it didn't. But a statute that has examples, even if they are confusing examples, has to be better than a statute that oh, has Well, no the statute as a whole might be, because you can look at it and say, well, there's one of the examples. But it seems to me that argument doesn't respond to the point that it makes the residual clause much more confusing if the examples seem to be pointing in different directions and, and uh, involve different, uh, totally different consequences. Uh, yes. You know, the, basically what the Court held in Johnson. So well, the fact that, yes, it's clear when you get to the specific thing that's named, but that – as the court explained, it makes it much more confusing. Confusing when you get to the residual clause. So, so I think the the easiest way to look at this, I would say, is if that if that had been the pivotal factor in Johnson. So Johnson says there are two 
factors that conspired. If it had been indeed that other factor, that what this Court should have done in Johnson is to say we will now, as a matter of statutory construction, stop trying to draw lessons from those examples and interpret the residual clause in its own right without trying to figure out whether the examples teach something about the relationships. This Court had an obligation to save the statute if that's what was causing the problem. It didn't, and I think it was — this Court was very conscious of what it was doing when it said that there were two critical things that conspired, uh, two critical uh, uh, elements that conspired to make the statute vague. And then in Welch, when this Court repeated what its holding was and its rationale was in Johnson, it repeated those same two critical elements, not this third one about the enumerated clauses. I, I see that. Uh, the thing underlying this is that, which is a difficult case, uh, if we say you're right, what then do we say about the moral turpitude, unfair competition, just and reasonable rates, public convenience and necessity, and there are a hundred others, and they're all civil. Now, what you've suggested is, well, what you say is this. You say that the Constitution requires the creation of an administrative agency, which will develop a tradition over time that will clarify what will otherwise. That, that kind of reasoning uh, was uh, present uh, in uh, the non-delegation doctrine. So what you want to say is that which would, uh, that which would have saved a statute under the non-delegation doctrine, which is not fair competition, delegation run riot, but which is, uh, gives meaning, is also necessary to save a civil statute from vagueness. Hmm. That's a very interesting holding. I'd rather read it in a lower view article uh, than I would write those words, uh, which will suddenly become real. Well, so, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, you see where I'm floating on this. I, I, I see your point. It's quite similar, but I quite worry about the implications. Well, Your Honor, so, let, so, so let's talk about the immigrations in, excuse me, the implications, that is, in the immigration context to begin with. Mm-hmm. In the immigration context, to the extent that, Your Honor, that, that, that you were quoting Justice Breyer from I was Im- quoting Cardoza. Right. Well, okay. So, but <laughs> I'm to, happy to be confused with him. But, but, uh, I, I confuse you all the time with him. So, um, to the extent that we're focusing on language that appears in the immigration statutes, that language has been interpreted, and that is a key distinction between this case and Mahler, for example, with with uh, which uh, Mr. Needler uh, invoked. Mahler was a situation in which Congress had defined the crimes that would make you deportable. And the problem was that the Attorney General could then exercise discretion as to whether he would deport you or not. And it was couched in terms of delegation because it was pre-Chevron <coughs> and pre-Schecter poultry. But this Court said, no, the, the fact that there is discretion doesn't bother us. Now, the second answer is, in the immigration context, as distinguished from perhaps any other context, as Justice Sotomayor was saying, The immigration context in particular is a context that implicates liberty with the severest sorts of consequences. 
So at a minimum in the immigration context, completely apart from uh, the public good sorts of questions and applications of civil Mr. Rosenkranz, I guess I would have thought that your answer would have been different. I guess I would have thought that your answer would have been, uh, John, whatever implications Johnson had for vagueness doctrine, it has already had. And that all you are asking us to do is just essentially to say that this statute is no different from the statute that we looked at in Johnson and to write an opinion that basically just repeats Johnson and whatever implications it's had or it will have, uh, it will have regardless, and this opinion would do nothing more. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. <laughs> what she said. I mean, if that's your answer, it totally ignores the fact that this is not a criminal case. And <clears throat> it certainly is true that deportation has more severe consequences than the typical civil case. But there are many other civil uh, cases that can have a devastating impact on someone, such as lo- child custody, um, loss of a professional license, uh, complete destruction of a business, loss of a home. Now, I- assuming that there is some sort of vagueness standard that applies in civil cases, I would have thought your answer would be that it's a sliding scale and that the the, the standard for civil cases is not the same as the standard for criminal cases, but how much specificity is required in the civil context depends on the severity of the consequences of the case. Well, well, so, Justice Alito, this Court in Hoffman said that it's a sliding scale. But in Jordan, when it came to uh, deportation, which this Court has described as the gravest sort of uh, consequence, which directly implicates liberty interests, this Court said it's at the same level well, as No, that's not critical. exactly the way the Court, what the Court said, or at least it's not necessary to read Jordan that way. And I think Jordan can be read to say, look, the dissent has raised this new argument. It wasn't briefed. It wasn't argued. The, the dissent says this is unconstitutionally vague. Uh, we're going to apply the criminal standard here, and it satisfies the criminal standard. It, it didn't say assuming for the sake of argument, but I think it can certainly be read that way. And if you don't read it that way, you are stuck with the conclusion that a statute making a crime of moral t- turpitude punishable by a felony uh, term of imprisonment would satisfy the vagueness standard for a criminal statute, which I think is very difficult to defend. Well, well so, Your Honor, let me say again two things. The first is this Court — doesn't have to decide whether Jordan equated criminal cases and civil cases with the most severe consequences, because this is a criminal statute that this Court is interpreting, and it has criminal consequences even as uh, imported through the uh, INA. And well, I just want well, would you say the same thing if it didn't incrim- if this statute did not incorporate? a definition that is also used in criminal statutes and simply had the same standard in a purely immigration statute. No reference to a a definition that also applies in criminal cases. I I would have a different argument, but but let me just be clear. This Court has said, and it said it in A.B. Small, it took a statute that was held unconstitutional, and this is back in 1924-25, found as a, 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 the statute that this Court found unconstitutional in the criminal context. It was then applied. It was a silly breach of contract case 
applied as a defense, and this Court said, no, when we struck it over there, we're going to strike the civil ramifications here as well. And this Court could adopt a very narrow holding, saying that when what Congress has done is to make the decision to import a criminal statute into a civil context, it brings the soil with the roots. And, and there's no such thing. It's, it's actually incoherent. I mean, that, I don't think that makes the slightest bit of sense. Suppose there were a criminal statute that says that it is a crime, it is a felony to charge, uh, an unjust rate. And then the, there was a civil statute that incorporated that and we would say, well, because you can't make it a felony to charge an, un- an unjust rate or price, you can't have that in the civil statute. You well, can't incorporate it into the civil statute. Your Honor, you just recited the facts of A.B. Small. That was exactly the statute there. It was struck in the criminal context. It was then imported as a defense in the civil context. And this Court said in A.B. Small, we don't care whether it was civil or criminal. If it was struck there, we're going to strike it here. And, and there's an important kind of separation of powers reason to do this. Congress made the decision to equate the two. Congress didn't. Congress could have used different words and revised the statute. But think of it in the RICO context. Let's take a classic case that this Court has decided. The definition of gangster this Court held in Lanzetta is unconstitutionally vague. A court couldn't then, in a civil RICO case, adopt that same standard, say that is the predicate crime, and impose trouble damages. It would be incoherent to tell the lower courts that what you do is take a statute that would be unconstitutional there and import it into the civil context and uphold it as constitutional here. Let me give you a very practical reason on the facts of this case. So in this case, Mr. DeMaia gets deported on the ground that the statute is sufficiently clear, and he is an aggravated felon. He then comes back to the United States the next day and can be prose- and will be prosecuted as an aggravated felon. But as an aggravated felon, there would be a different standard and he can't be prosecuted. It would make no sense to have a scheme where the same words that, that use the same statutory uh, definition are uh, means something in one context, as this Court hold, would hold hypothetically in this case, but in the 16B context when it, or in the context of the definition of a crime means something else. What do you do with, with Leo Cal? I mean, one thing is clear. The Court did say that burglary is the classic crime that fits within 16B. Well, two things to say about that statement in Leocal, which was obviously, I mean, this court, Leocal was, uh, burglary was not before this court. The first is, this is California burglary, which looks very different as this court held in day camp from a normal burglary. California burglary can be committed by being invited into someone's home with the intention of selling them fraudulent securities. That is an actual case that applied it in that way. That's why this case didn't work under 16A and the elements, right? That's correct, Your Honor. And then you bring me to another point that's really important. Uh, Mr. Needler never answered Justice Kagan's question about under the government's current view of what 16B means, where the space is between the elements clause and the residual clause, I'm actually having trouble coming up with an example of a situation, uh, of, a, of a scenario in which 
a crime does not satisfy the elements clause because there is no element that requires the use or threat or attempt to use uh, uh, force. But on the other hand, quote, unquote, by its nature, requires the use of force the moment you finish uh, uh, satisfying each other. Well, I see he says burglary is that. Burglary can't be that. A burglary is committed the moment you cross the threshold. And by the way, in California, it doesn't have to be an unlicensed crossing of the threshold. So a burglary is, is committed uh, when you cross the threshold, even if you're crossing the threshold lawfully. If I understood what he was saying, and I won't try to put words in his mouth, but it was something along the lines of, yes, it's true that the elements of burglary do not have the use of force, but if we look back to the historic understanding of burglary, what we find is a long-standing concern with exactly that subject. Well, in other words, that burglary wouldn't have been defined as it was, wouldn't have been prosecuted as it was, except for this fear of the use of force. I don't know. That's the best I can do with it, and he'll tell me if he can do better. So, Your Honor, I can't do any better. That sounds like the ordinary case approach, which creates the mischief when you layer on top of it an assessment of risk. What is the principle of law that led to A.B. Small? I mean, no one thinks statutory words in the civil context, unjust or unreasonable rates, whether enforced by courts against railroads or whether enforced by an agency, is unconstitutional. Well, Your Honor, no one thinks that. Uh, Yet uh, A.B. Small holds that, but it holds that in the context of there having been an uh, earlier case that struck the, the, those words down in the criminal context. So what is the principle of I, law it stands for? Your, Your Honor, the, the principle of law that A.B. Small stands for that I was arguing specifically is the principle of law that when a court strikes a statute that Congress has made the decision to impose criminal and civil consequences to, that statute is gone and you don't start preserving the civil consequences to it. Because Congress made the decision and we just follow Congress's direction. I do want to close with one last point, which is about the practical consequences uh, of, of this ruling. First, I already said, in the criminal context, the practical consequences are very limited because as this Court uh, uh, observed in Johnson, Practically, all of the applications of 16b are applied to a concrete set of facts. Then the question becomes, what, in light of the notion that this Court has not decided a lot of 16b cases, should this Court try to engage in the same exercise in the 16b context that was a failure in the ACA, in the ACA time context? But, in deciding whether to take that route, this Court has to decide what is to be gained by that enterprise. The enterprise of setting the lower courts adrift and of considering the risks of the use of force from statutes that do not have use of force at an, as an element. At some point, this Court is going to have to decide whether it's had enough. And it's not like we don't know where this case is headed, where, the, where this inquiry is headed. Justice Kagan unveiled all of the next sets of questions. They are all coming here. We have seen this show before. We know how it ends. So the Court may as well save itself and the lower courts the grief of trying well, to — Well, what's coming here? You said that the lower courts are all confused and there are splits developing. What? 
Sykes Redux is headed to this court. After Sykes will be a James Redux, a Chambers Redux. If you look at our brief with the list of examples of circuit conflicts, they're all coming here. Or the National Immigration Project's brief cites another five circuit conflicts. They are all coming to this court, and it's, this court will be uh, uh, overwhelmed with the exercise of trying to figure out what the ordinary case of each of those thousands of statutes is, just as it was overwhelmed and finally gave up the exercise in, uh, in Johnson. So we know that it's coming. We know where it's going to end. So this court should just end it here, and it should end it now. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Needler, three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, first, um, uh, we explain in our opening brief and reply brief that there is simply not the disarray uh, that there was uh, w- with respect to the ACCA uh, residual clause. This Court has considered one case in the Mr. 30 Needler, years. that's if you concentrate on us. But I did read those portions of Respondent's brief and the Amici brief. And it does seem like we're going to have a redux Sykes and a redux James and a redux many of the issues. As, as, um, we, as we explain in our brief, uh, the, the conflicts that, that we address there can be explained by the differences in the state statutes. Uh, and that's what you have to, you have to apply, the, the statutory standard of creating a risk to particular state statutes. And as we explain, the, the conflicts that they assert are largely that. But if, if I could then go on, uh, Leocal is the only case this Court considered, and the Court there considered it clear that it was able to say that DUI was in and bur- uh, burglary was in, DUI was out. And that's because of the, t- of the sort of textual differences between this statute and that one. It requires not some injury down the road, but physical force actually being used, a risk of physical force actually being used by the there defendant in the offense. Who, there were some who argued in the drunken driving test that the minute you get behind the car, you act drunk, you're using a lethal weapon, a car, to inflict injury on others. But the, the court — win here, but that argument was still being made in the courts below, and some courts below bought it. Right, but, but, the, but the important point is this court clarified it in, in Leocal to say that you, it's, an, it's a category of active violent crimes, risk of, of, of physical force or actual physical force under 16A. And again, burglary, this court said, and, and uh, burglary is a continuing offense. While you might be able to prosecute somebody for burglary the moment they enter, burglary, this generic burglary, as this court said in Taylor, includes remaining in the house. And, and this court said, it's, it, it's not made up, that this court said burglary is included because by its nature it involves a substantial risk that the burglar will use force against a victim in completing the crime. The same thing is true with kidnapping. You can kidnap somebody by inveigling, but the, the risk of force is that he'll try to escape and you'll have to use physical force. So the, I don't think the court is at sea. It can, it can look at what the, the state statute is driving at and, and apply the standard. Many, also, many statutes have civil and criminal applications, but that doesn't mean private litigants can invoke the criminal law standard. A.B. Small, when the court got to the civil context, it said there was no intelligible standard, which, which, which was a much more relaxed standard. Finally, on immigration, uh, immigration is vested in an administrative agency, so there is always the, the intervening action by the executive. And even in the situation where the agency may not get deference, there is still a centralized control over the bringing of the cases and the 
Board of Immigration Appeals can say this is out, this is in. The courts will only see the cases where the BIA actually sustains the removal, but that has a way uh, of limiting and giving uh, and giving notice to people. With respect to uh, — I'm sorry. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.